0: I want to tell you about February, 1997. Half of you were not even born then, I understand that. But February, 1997 was a time in my life where I just wanted to know what was going to happen in the future. I was graduating from seminary soon. I didn't have a job didn't have a ministry, not too many people were eager to hire a 25-year-old pastor. I was also taking care of my grandmother, who was in very ill health, and I knew that wherever I would end up, she would have to come with me, though I didn't know how to physically get her there due to her health. But those two issues were very small compared to the larger issue of me considering this girl named Melissa. I was interested in her. In fact, I was interested in asking her to marry me, but I had never done that before. So that was new to me. So it's February, 97. Three huge things are facing me. I had no clue what was going to happen. I didn't know how the future would unfold And I'm wondering if there is anyone here this morning, as you look to the future, you have no clue what's going to happen. In fact, maybe you're a little confused. You're asking questions like, where will I end up after graduation? What am I going to do this summer? For those of you moving, what's it going to be like to move and Will you make friends where you move? And for those of you who are single wanting to get married, you're like, am I ever going to get married? And for those of you wanting to have kids, you're wondering, am I ever going to have kids? And then when you start having kids, what's going to happen to these kids? How are they going to turn out? And for those of you who want to transition jobs, what's that going to be like? Those of you struggling in your health, what's going to happen next? It's very common. We're all together in this, right? What is going to happen in the future? I mean, wouldn't you like to know what your life would look like one year from right now? Just give me a year. Show me what's going to happen in a year. It's all I want. Just give me one year. So if that's you, because it certainly is me, you will find that this morning you will be encouraged From the book of Ecclesiastes. Go ahead and turn there if you'd like. Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 3. I know a lot of you are joining us for the first time. Here's a little overview of Ecclesiastes, a little statement we've been saying each week. The book of Ecclesiastes shows life's frustration and apparent meaninglessness while reminding us that our only hope is to fear the Lord, freeing us to enjoy life's blessing in view of eternity with Jesus. And the phrase that we've been using over and over again is the phrase, life is gift, not gain. Enjoy God's gift of life today rather than seeking future gain. And today we're going to be encouraged by by God's master plan for life. So like I said, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm going to start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now before we we proceed here, you know this is probably the most well-known portion of Ecclesiastes because what we're going to see in verses 2 through 8 is generally what happens on this earth and the broad picture of things. This is a list of 14 couplet opposites, and it is a literary form that describes two extremes. Life happens in between these two extremes. This list does not tell you what to do or how to live, but the list describes generally what happens on this earth. And as we go through these, for those of you who know the 1965 bird song, Turn, 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 feel free to hum along. For those of you who have no clue, look it up. Verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. All of life happens in between. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Here we move from human life to plant life. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. It's describing war and the destruction and the healing and the rebuilding that takes place after it. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. The response to life is filled with weeping and mourning and laughing and dancing. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Describes destroying a field, probably during wartime, so that it cannot produce vegetation. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Probably talking about acquiring wealth and losing wealth. A time to tear and a time to sew. Probably the tearing of clothes while I'm mourning. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is where you live. You live in the extremes and in between of these times and seasons. And sometimes the seasons can last longer than others. And when I think about this going from one extreme to the other, I think about um, being at a carnival. And you think about the, the pirate ship at carnivals. Have you ever rode in that ship that swings one way and then it swings the other? I hate that ride. It makes me so sick. I hate it. But that's kind of the extremes of life. You're moving from one to the other and everything in between. So as we think about this, be sure to set it in the fuller context. Because if you don't set this in the context, you'll miss the right punch. All right? Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Stop there. What gain has the worker from his toil is the question we asked before. What do you ultimately profit from all your work here under the sun? What's left over when it's all said and done? What's the payoff? And we have concluded so far through this book that there is no payoff. You gain nothing because you're ultimately going to die and you can take nothing with you. Now set it in the context of times and seasons. The times and the seasons will continue to happen. The sun will come up. It will go down. Fall, winter, spring, summer, year after year will continue on with these times and seasons. People will be born People will die, some will laugh, some will mourn. But when it's all said and done, you have no gain because you will die. In addition to that encouraging word, we've also saw a repeated refrain in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This was mentioned before in chapter 1, verse 13. It's talking about God's response to man's sin as he cursed the world. Why can't you have lasting gain? Because you are going to die. I mean, at times you look at this book and you go, "Well, this, why, how is this in the Bible? I, I, I'm going to die after I swing between these extremes and the seasons, and, and then I just die and there's no gain? Well, at the end of chapter 2, finally, God was introduced in this book. And now, in chapter 3, God enters the picture again. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This word beautiful is probably not saying uh, talking about this intrinsic beauty, like we would say, that is such a beautiful baby, or that sunset was so beautiful. The idea here is more in the sense of appropriate, or as, as one has said, it's beautifully, beautifully fitting. And the idea is that God makes all that happens on this earth fit perfectly together. From the creation of the heavens and the earth to the creation of light and darkness to the creation of plants and animals and humans, it was all made at the appropriate time. And God even determined throughout all of history to make you right now. He could have created you in the past. He could have made you sometime in the future, but he decided that he would determine to make you right now for a reason. A beautifully fitting reason. In fact, all that has happened to you fits into his grand overall plan from your laughing to your feasting to your dancing. God has ordained you to be created now and for what you have experienced to be part of his beautifully fitting plan. Now that's okay to accept when things are going good. But how can you say that God's plan is beautifully fitting when things are going bad? Because some of you can tell of times in your life where you have been absolutely miserable. Horrific things may have happened to you. Maybe they're happening to you right now. And you want to say, God, how is that beautifully fitting? I mean, something bad that happens to you, is that something that God caused? Is it something that he determined? Is it something that he planned for your life? Or is it something that just happened to you while God is off doing whatever? But as Christians, we believe that God is ordaining everything. You can say it in different words. You can talk about allowing. He's never responsible for sin. And yes, humans still make choices that somehow play into all that mystery. But I believe when it's all said and done, if you are a follower of Jesus, that one day when you're in his presence, as you're worshiping him, you will agree that everything that happened to you, the good, the bad, everything, you will say, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, and it's all beautifully fitting. Even the wicked stuff, beautifully fitting. And the only reason I can say that with confidence is because I know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, on this earth to suffer in my place and in your place on the cross. And I know that God's wrath was on him instead of me. And through faith in Jesus, I can have a relationship with the Father. And so I can say this, how did God give me so much in Jesus, forgiveness, grace, mercy, justification, righteousness, and yet not work out anything for my good? So this argument here is that God is sovereign and all that is happening is beautifully fitting. How that mysteriously works, I don't all understand. But I know that he's sovereign and in control. So back to the point. If he's sovereign of your creation, sovereign over your past and your future, how many of you, if you believe that God is working for your good and your glory, right now you believe it. You believe it, that you could be miserable right now. But you believe God is in control. He still loves you. He's still working for your good. Things could be terrible for you. But you believe it, you believe it, you believe it. Well, the question is, if you believe it, then why do you still want to know your future? Why do you want to know what's going to happen next. And I would say, because that's the way you were made. That's the way you were created. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Another translation there gets at the fact that In your heart, there's a sense of time, past, and future. There's something in you that's made in the image of God. It's marred, but something about in you detects eternity. There's something in you that senses there's a past and there's a future and there's more to life. And and you want to know what's next. And you want to kind of know the inner workings. That's the way God made you in his image. Yeah, I kind of want to know what's going to happen next. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But God has also set it up this way, where you can't know the future. And the reason is in verse 11 again. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. (laughs) You can't understand all of eternity past, and you can't understand all of eternity future, even tomorrow. And the question is, why not? And here it is because you are not God. You're part of the creation, you're not the creator. God knows the beginning to the end, and what He chooses to reveal to us is His prerogative. There's once this uh, theologian from Times Past, St. Augustine, perhaps you've heard about him. And he's he's walking along. I guess this is what theologians do. He's walking along on by the seashore and he's pondering the nature of God. Is that what you do when you walk along the lake? Pondering the nature of God. And he sees this little boy with this, I guess this big old seashell, and he's digging this hole in the sand. And then he's running over to the sea, scooping up water and dumping it in the hole, running over the sea, dumping it in the hole. And Augustine goes up to him and says, little boy, what are you doing? And the little boy said, I'm trying to take the sea, and I'm going to put it here. And Augustine's like, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to take this mind and sovereign God and stick it inside of me. I'm trying to grasp this plan of his from the sea of infinity and, and grasp it with my finite mind. And that's what I find myself doing. I'll say, God, I just want to know it all. I just want to know what's going to happen next. Just tell me. And God's like, I'm the creator. You're the created one. I'm the father. You are the son. Yeah? And he wants us to (laughs) trust him. I want to make sure you get this. Why can't you know what's going to happen in the future? Because the Lord wants you to understand that you are not God. God. And you are to be humbly dependent upon him. And this is going to help us in a little bit when we talk about life as gift and not gain. Here's a good way to state it from David Gibson. Let me put this up for you. David Gibson says, Satisfaction comes when you know you are a time-bound creature and God is the eternal creator. Satisfaction lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my creaturely existence and accept the seasons of my life as coming from his good and wise hand. He's God. I'm not. I can trust him. I would not have planned this way if I'm going through hard times, but somehow I'm going to trust him that he knows what he's doing. So if you believe that, that God is working for your good and for his glory if you believe that he who saved you in Jesus Christ is working for your good and for his glory, and if you know for sure that he's God and you're not and you can't know your future, then here's the question, all right? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with your life? You can't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so what do you do in the present facing an unknown future? Well, I'm going to give you two things, all right? Two things, I'm not making these up. Two things that... Bible's going to say to do. So let's see what those are. So the first thing is kind of laid out in verses 12 and 13. Look at it. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Are are we reading the same Bible? It's it's not saying, go figure out your future. What what did it say there? It said, pretty much said, um, enjoy life. Enjoy life. The Bible says that. Be joyful, do good, eat and drink, and take pleasure in His 12. That's in the Bible. And you're like, well, that kind of sounds like the seize the day theology we hear in the world, right? Make the most of today because there's no tomorrow. No, we're not into that, right? Because we believe there's a God, there's eternity. That's not the seize the day theology of the preacher here. The preacher here is saying, hey, try as best you can to enjoy your life. Try to enjoy your work. Even try to enjoy your marriage. Try to enjoy your kids and do good and be kind and share and eat and drink. Not because there's no tomorrow. No, 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 because there is eternity. But life is gift and not gain. I was talking to a guy this week, and he has moved four times in four years. And you say, well, that sounds like a college student. No, no, no. This is after college. Four times in four years. In fact, he's about to move the fifth time in five years. And he wonders each time, should I be settling in here? And he thinks, okay, once I get a real home, then then I'm going to be happy. And maybe you think about that too. You're like, once things kind of settle down and your future kind of falls into place, then you'll be happy. But what he's trying to learn and what I'm trying to learn and what the Bible wants us to learn is that even in the midst of all these transitions and unknown futures, you today can be happy in God, rejoice even in suffering, be kind to others, and eat and drink and be merry. Is that freeing you at all? The Bible's not saying, I want you to just go home and this afternoon, really worry about your future. That will make your body and mind at peace. Go home and be anxious about what you're going to do. It's not saying that. Go home and enjoy today your life in Christ. So that's the first thing you need to do is go, go enjoy yourself in the Lord. But the second thing you can do with the unknown future is the way we're going to finish up here in verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now all this is maybe a little bit hard to understand, especially in verse 15, but what it's getting at is that God has a master plan that is eternal and immutable. God's master plan includes everything that he does. And it will endure forever. And God is carrying out this eternal plan. It cannot be altered or changed. And God is ordaining events and times and seasons. And it's playing out all under his sovereign control. And this is his plan. And what is to be your response? Here's the second thing you can do. Do you see it in verse 14? So that people fear before him. And there it is. There's that humble reverence. It's to make you fear before him. That God is so in control of your crazy life, that God is so working out his purposes in your unknown future, that you are to to stand or kneel or get on your face and say, God, you are God. I am not. I have Humble reverence and fear before you. I worship you. I worship you that you're God and I'm not. I worship you that you have a purpose that I can't see, but you do. And it's good. and It's for your glory. I worship you. And there has been few times in my life, very, very few, that I have felt that. But I felt it. For sure. February 1997. I was as The three moving parts, finishing school, no job, (laughs) take care of my grandma, what am I doing? Girl, Melissa, I don't know how to ask to get married. Three things, three moving parts. And I remember just kneeling and saying, God, I have no clue how any of this is going to turn out. I don't know. But you're working on a good plan. And you're in control. And for me, it helped to know that The timing was his timing. The purposes were his purposes. And I didn't know in February that soon I would ask this girl, Melissa, to marry me in April. Then I would graduate in May. (laughs) Still no job. (laughs) And then I get a job, I call the ministry in July, and we get married in July. How convenient. And then move in September from Dallas to California. And somehow my grandma gets there as well, through the air, (laughs) by God's grace. February, clueless. God, you got it all. And you worked it out. And you worked it out. I didn't see what was going to happen six months later, but God saw it. And I felt, like I say, a serious... Reverence and awe that he's a sovereign. And I worshipped him. And I just want to tell you and be honest with you right now, I need that again. <laughs> I need that right now. Because right now I feel overwhelmed with life and I need to be overwhelmed with God's sovereignty. Because back then in 97 I had three moving parts. Now I have nine We're transitioning, and you think, well, yeah, you just kind of get rid of this home, and then you get another home. How's that going to work out? I don't know. I got one in college in Colorado and one going to college soon here in Trinity, and then I have five others I got to figure out, transitioning schools. And, oh, yeah, by the way, I have one still in Jamaica that needs to immigrate to the United States, So, I can finalize an adoption in Illinois. And oh, by the way, I need that to happen over the next few weeks. So, I step back and I say, God, I have no idea how this is going to work. But you're God, you're sovereign, and your timing and your purposes are perfect. And you should probably think the same way for yourself. How is it going to turn out for you? I have no idea. But hey, this afternoon, don't spend it worrying, being anxious. Enjoy yourself in the Lord. In fact, maybe even kneel and pray before him and say, God, you got this. You're in control and you're working out your purposes for my good and for your glory. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for those who are going through a hard time right now. I know there's some going through a hard time right now with their health and in their, their relationships, and they don't see any resolution or even hope to either one of those. Let people know that you are not only sovereign and control, but you're a good, good father, and you care for them. Give them some hope right now that in the midst of the, the mess they're in, There's hope. And, Lord, I just ask that you'd help us to stand in awe of you and to trust you, even when things right now seem chaotic, at least in my life, and I'm sure others as well, that you've got a plan, that you've got good purposes, and your timing is, is perfect. For you make all things beautiful. You make all our times in our lives beautifully fitting. Help us to believe it. Not just for your glory, help us to believe it's also for our good. In Christ's name.